This edition of Farming the Countryside is brought to you by Pivot Bio Proven. Turn to a better nitrogen. Learn more at pivotbio.com. Welcome to Farming the Countryside. I'm Andrew McRae. The ongoing war in Ukraine has impacts far beyond that nation's borders. We visit with Aaron Bohr to learn more about how that conflict is impacting Ukraine's farmers and the ripple effects that will touch agricultural, energy, and food markets globally. It's our topic for this week's Farming the Countryside, brought to you by Pivot Bio. One of the biggest concerns for farmers are rising input prices, and at the top of many lists is nitrogen. Even with higher prices, you still need nitrogen, and in today's world, I'm looking for ways to increase bushels while still using more sustainable farming methods. That led me to Pivot Bio Proven 40, which can produce up to the equivalent of 40 pounds of synthetic nitrogen. Our field demonstrations show an opportunity for a better ROI and a reduction of synthetic nitrogen. Turn to a better nitrogen with Pivot Bio. I hope you'll learn more. Just go to pivotbio.com. Over the past couple of months, we have learned a lot about the country of Ukraine. Many of us are following the war in that country, and perhaps some of you even have personal contacts with the citizens there. Ukraine is an important country for global agriculture, both for grains and livestock, and this war is certainly having an impact on their ability to grow a crop, let alone process it or export it. Aaron Bohr is the Vice President for Economic Analysis at the U.S. Meat Export Federation, We discussed the prospects for Ukraine's domestic meat and grain production this year and how this will impact nations around the world. Erin Bohr is my guest. She is the Vice President for Economic Analysis at the United States Meat Export Federation. Erin, I appreciate uh, you joining me. We're going to go really all across the globe, but I think we'll begin first today by going to Ukraine because that's certainly on a lot of people's minds, of course, with the war going on there. There's many different ways we can look at this, but perhaps maybe we just start by talking about Ukraine and their impact as far as the grains and feeds that they supply to neighboring nations, because that in turn impacts what we might be doing on the meat export side. Would that be right? Yes, exactly. That's right. As we look at it, the direct meat impacts are fairly limited, uh, and it's really a story on the feed and input side. And I mean, ironically, we were seeing higher prices for these products before Putin invaded. So, you know, you just kind of added fuel to the fire. And yes, Ukraine is incredibly important. So the breadbasket of Europe, you know, number two exporter of barley, number three or four of corn, depending on how you look at it, number one in sunflower seed oil, and then number five in wheat with Russia as number one. So really, really critical on the the feed grain side. And again, for me, it was that impact. We already had such tight balance sheets already. And so then not removing entirely, but seeing real limits on what Ukraine's going to be able to produce and export is, you know, the, the important factor as we look at it from the meat side. And I mean, others are closer to it than me, but, you know, just the product that's still in storage so the, I think it was the FAO that was quoted again this week, and a lot of numbers have been out there, but there were like 24 million tons, you know, still in storage in Ukraine, 
that haven't that were supposed to be shipped from last crop. I think the number for corn is 12 to 14 million tons. And so that product is still sitting in storage. They're trying to move it by rail, uh, but seaport shipments were the majority of how that product moved and that's basically impossible. And this isn't these aren't short run issues, right? I mean, I don't have any clarity on when and how this ends, but it's not going to be resolved tomorrow. And so then if you think about the farmers in Ukraine, your planting decisions. So for corn, they export, I don't know, 75% of production or something. The majority of corn is exported. I still have full uh, storage and the movement on export is, you know, they're working on rail and truck, but it's diminished dramatically. So how much corn do I plant? So, I mean, you hear a lot of talk on the wheat side, which is really important, especially for food. But as we look at it on the corn side, too, especially for livestock feed. Do you have any idea in Ukraine, and, and we probably won't just because there's an ongoing war, but do they expect to plant much of a crop this year? And even if they did and were able to harvest it, can they, they get it out? Or are there just too many unknowns at this point to even know what could happen this year with Ukraine and production? Yeah, Kansas State did a webinar I think earlier this week. And I looked through the materials there and they have some really good intel and analysis. And it still sort of sound like, sounds like a mixed bag to me. But if you look at like the occupied territory, you know, planting in those areas and some of that land being mined, um, planting in those areas is not going to happen. So they had some estimates in there on what can be planted. And I'm trying to remember, but there is a possibility that a good share of acres can still be planted is what it's, that was my high level take. Uh, but it's still sharp reductions across all categories, especially corn, but also barley, sunflower, everything seeing sharp reductions in what they think could be planted and harvested this year. So again, it's not, it's not a zero, but for corn, I've seen estimates instead of um, 40 million metric tons, then maybe you're at like 20 or even 18 million metric tons. And again, I know corn gets hit hard because of the export reliance, but but yes, there are some estimates out there and the reductions uh, in planting and harvest are significant. Again, not zero, but a huge impact. Of course, when we think of Ukraine, it's mostly the, those feed grains. But when it comes to meat, does Ukraine, for the most part, just supply itself? Are they an exporter or importer of meat? Or did they have any big impact when we think about meat globally? Yes, they, they're they most important on the poultry side. So, you know, less familiar to us as we focus on beef and pork. But of the meats, the, the most importance is on the poultry side and net exporting poultry to Europe. So if you, I mean, again, there's, there is significant impacts. If you've seen Wall Street Journal had coverage recently on, um, you know, birds piling up in the farm because they weren't able to continue operating properly. You've had a lot of farmers and agricultural producers go to fight. So you hear that as well. And there was also a recent um, kind of plea from one of the ag associations in Ukraine asking for outside investment to help rebuild their livestock production to be able to consume some of this grain at home. So there's been like short run damage. And then they're also seeing, well, maybe we can rebuild our livestock sector to consume the corn and barley and wheat if we can't export as much of it. So all sorts of like, you know, stuff going on in the country. But 
as we look at it on a balance sheet, yeah, Ukraine was, they were very small in beef, um, somewhat relevant on the pork side, but mostly just, you know, local. And then poultry, a lot of that going into to Europe. And so I guess the only other interesting thing, or one of the other interesting things on the meat side is that there were growing beef exports from Russia, Ukraine, and Belarus into China. And when you add those three together, they shipped around 60,000 tons to China last year. So not insignificant. So I kind of minimized the beef impact, but actually there, when you add those three countries together, they have been doing more business into China and that is the top destination for all of them. Pork side trades really limited. Uh, most important for Russia actually is a net exporter now and exporting heavily into Vietnam. And because they don't have access in most of the world because of African swine fever in Russia, they have pretty limited access, but they've become a the top supplier actually into Vietnam. So yeah, the meat trade, I mean, there is some, there are some interesting pieces there. I mean, Russia, we don't see that slowing down. Vietnam was one that uh, abstained in the UN human rights vote. So as far, we haven't really been able to tell directly, but as far as we know, or maybe my assumption is that Russia just keeps shipping, you know, pork to Vietnam, for example. So, so yes, there is some trade, but for Ukraine itself, it was mostly on the poultry to Europe. So when we think about Ukraine and its feed grains, then their non-ability, shall we say, to be able to get some of those feed grains to some of the surrounding countries they normally had done so, how does that, what's the ripple effect then in the meat markets? Do those neighboring countries simply don't have the feed and so they can't export as much? Or what does USMEF see as far as the ripple effect of that then? Yeah, this is where it gets kind of overwhelming for me anyway. Um, the There's just... There's a hole in the balance sheet that I can't really fill. And we know the market's job is to kill off demand, right? So that's why we're seeing strong prices. Again, it's also kind of <laughs> confusing because we were already seeing strong prices before this, right? So you're dealing with a tight balance sheet already. You remove, I don't know, 10 to 15 or more million tons of corn. And when there's not a lot of wiggle room, yeah, it gets very interesting. But again, the, the market will ration demand. Um, hard to really understand how that works. I guess for me, the other difficult piece in here is just where's China going to be? So with China really moving into the corn market over the past two years, that delta going from never really filling its TRQ of seven and a half million tons to you know close to 30 million tons of imported corn. That big swing was a lot of what, you know, lit the fire into the corn market even before Ukraine. So where does China sustain in that corn market? So far looking pretty strong. The other thing here is that the only suppliers of corn to China are the U.S. and Ukraine. And so last year, U.S. was the majority of imports, we were close to 70% and Ukraine was 29%. And that's it. Those are the two suppliers. So often the default response is, well, there will just be more production in South America. Okay. But Brazil's really reliant on fertilizer. And they're also much more reliant on imported fertilizer than we are. 
And we know that they're, at least on the bean side, their crop was short because of drought. So it's not as easy to just say, oh, they'll just produce more in South America. Um, and I guess the input cost side of it is, and even just availability is a big question that, you know, everyone still has. I've also heard opinions that Brazil can still get the fertilizer and that they can still get supplies from Russia, Belarus, elsewhere. You know, Brazil, interestingly, is another one that abstained on the UN human rights vote. So I don't know, there's just a lot of bigger geopolitical stuff as well as the many moving parts on the actual market side. But the other thing as we think about the meat side, all of our big export markets for beef and pork are also huge importers of feed grains. So we know that the US, we remain at a big advantage uh, on our production of beef and pork and poultry because of our homegrown feed grains. So even though our price is higher, the world price should be even higher because then they're paying transport on top. We know transportation is sky high and a mess. So as a producer, we should be better off in the US and still have sustained demand for imports of our beef and pork because producers in other countries are less efficient and their costs just went up even more. And this is probably most important for our European competitors. On the pork side, when we add Europe together, they're the biggest pork exporter in the world. And when we break out the countries, we're number one, followed by Spain. So Europe's imports of like corn, barley, we add them all together. 40% were from Ukraine. So Europe is still uh, a net export of feed grains total when you lump everything together. So they're really important on the export market but also for imports, that big reliance on Ukraine. So here we are back to, okay, then if not Ukraine, then who? And again, I know some product is railing into Europe, so they are working on, on that side. But Europe's pork production was already in decline. Uh, mostly this is coming out of Germany because of African swine fever and being out of most of the world markets, plus those German producers are up against uh, increased animal welfare and environmental regulations. And that added cost on top of sustained low prices had just been, you know, unsustainable. So we were already seeing a decrease in European output after record production last year. So this is pretty new. Um, but their pig numbers had dropped in the December survey. Total EU sows down 3%. And so, again, the question is, well, how much can they sustain if we just look at the whole block? you know, with high costs, and again, given their reliance on Ukraine specifically for imports. So yeah, I don't have answers. I guess the other thing to further complicate it is, like on feed grains, we have tight global meat supplies before all of this as well. So beef production, if we just look at the top exporters, production is still down from its 2019 peak. Uh, part of that is herd rebuilding in Australia. Now we are in our liquidation phase, so we'll be tight on supplies next year and the next year. So we alternate schedules kind of with Australia, ironically. Um, and then on the pork side, it's been a mess because of African swine fever. So China was a big part of that. They have rebounded, but still global pork production is below its 2018 peak. And so maybe that's a good thing with such tight feed supplies and with a slowdown in the global economy. Maybe that keeps a floor under, you know, 
livestock prices. Because as we know, in agriculture, we're price takers, right? So everyone likes to say, well, high feed prices, high meat prices, but it takes a supply response first. You know, speaking of price, certainly prices are higher, even globally, because of of many factors. Have we seen price resistance yet, though? Are consumers continuing to eat meat basically at the same uh, pace that they have been in the past? Yes, that's exactly what we're watching out for. And I guess me as the pessimist, I'm kind of expecting. But so far, you have kind of a, a... push-pull thing going on or a tug-of-war. So on the beef side, we have not seen a slowdown internationally. I think domestically, we're starting to see that a bit. Um, But to be fair, I mean, comparing to last year is a bit complicated because the way, well, when we look at, we break out prices on a quarterly basis and look at just the choice beef cutout against supplies available If you look at it quarterly, there was a huge jump in Q2 and Q3 last year, kind of above trend. So demand being off the charts. And in my mind, that was just an amazing combination of food service in the U.S., but also a lot of our international markets coming back and just trying to refill an empty pipeline. And at the same time, our retail spending kept going at basically COVID levels. And so... You had that like double demand for our products, beef and pork and chicken, um, through restaurants and food or restaurants and retail at the same time. And you had exports on a record pace. So that's what drove our cutout values for both beef and pork to highs last year. It, there was volatility in there as well, of course, because this, you know, it's just kind of crazy. And so this year we're seeing some smoothing. We're still above trend on those metrics. When you look at kind of the scatter on demand, we're still above trend as far as that demand metric, but it's off of its peaks. And so I don't know if I'm panicked yet about a consumer, you know, trading down or whatever, but you are seeing some of that moderation. On the export side, our March export data showed that unit export value for beef still up 33% year on year. And those prices escalated essentially from about April on. And they started to kind of come off from November and bounce around a bit. So we probably peaked more or less, but still really strong. And on the pork side, we've seen the export price actually tick up uh, year on year in March. And the pork export price has been kind of well, there's been some impacts there because we went from China buying strong in the first half of last year and then the shift to Mexico. And so a bit of a change in shipping chilled combos of bone and hams to the south uh, and kind of losing that China competition. So the fact that prices have held as strong as they have is actually really impressive because we had to shift from China being such a huge mover in the market to shipping to everywhere else. And fortunately, there was really pent up demand in the rest of the world, and that was able to happen. And so far this year, we're down year on year, but we have really hard year ago comparisons through the first half on pork. So yeah, there's a lot of factors. uh, But I guess the other thing is, in a lot of the Asian markets, like Japan and Korea, for example, we were expecting the food service rebound this year. So they were still dealing with on off COVID restrictions all last year and into really basically into April of this year. 
So on the one hand, I want to say oh, inflation's hitting everyone. We're going to have consumers pull back a bit. But on the other hand, we have to remember that this was supposed to be a revenge spending year. So you may still have some of that, you know, return to restaurants, possibly even return to travel, still play out for a while. In the time we have left, I'd like to look around the world. I know that in Asia, we've had several countries that are continuing to have strong demand. Korea, I understand, is one of those even surpassing Japan in some cases. Is that correct? Yeah, Korea has been amazing. Um, Now, number one beef market for the U.S. And I mean, as I like to say, Korea is my model market because we've watched that market go from candlelight vigils in the street protesting against U.S. beef when we came back from BSE and the chorus implementation and beef just got politicized uh, and it was treacherous times. And Jihei, our director there, just said, we need to wait. We need to lay low. When the time is right, we'll start to work back in. So we went to two trust campaign and then we hit world class beef. And that's where we are. And I still remember her saying when Koreans taste U.S. beef again, they'll remember and like the market will come back. And it's just been incredible. Um, and seeing the, the signage on the big retailers shift from Australia clean and safe to that U.S. choice beef shield or U.S. prime beef shield. Um, it's just been, it's been a, a long, long road, but yeah, record breaking. And the other impressive thing, I guess, is even through COVID, so restaurants, they kept going, but they were not, they've not been back to pre-COVID levels. But consumers still demanded U.S. beef. So it was kind of like what we saw in this country, that retail demand was just amazing. And we've been plowing the ground on kind of a steak cut uh, shift away from thin slice to steak cut. And that had been penetrating at retail before COVID. And so retail demand just, you know, incredible and able to offset that little bit of pullback in food service. And so, so yes, there's even more demand, we think, on the food service side yet to come. But retail has been Incredible. Same in Taiwan, you know, smaller market, but similar things have played out there as well. Aaron, as we wind up, any other places around the world you'd like to take us or any other trends that you want to make sure that we're aware of right now? Yes, I mean, convenience has also been a big factor in all of these markets. And we know with COVID, the shift to online. And I guess for us, we've been able to still reach consumers in every way. So our our local staff, of course, we're there in all these markets throughout everything. But the digital aspect gives us access to these consumers kind of like never before. So we're able to share information, uh, recipe videos, Journey to American Beef, a campaign in Japan where we take them to our producers, working on more sustainability messaging. So we're able to reach them through, you know, targeted content in video, especially. Uh, It's really exciting to be able to tell our story, you know, kind of on a personal level in these markets. And I've talked about Asia quite a bit, but the Western Hemisphere has been phenomenal as well. And we've had these horrible logistical issues, but we were able to reach a lot of the Western Hemisphere while trucking to Mexico and Canada, but also by ship out of the Gulf and the East Coast to a lot of Central and South America. And those markets just boomed last year, especially for pork, again, as we saw that shift away from China. So for me, it's just the the broad-based growth has been 
probably the most exciting thing. And that given all of the turmoil, we still had record exports and with the massive shipping constraints, which I didn't talk a lot about, but they've been a complete nightmare for the exporters. So despite all that, still having record exports is is quite amazing. Aaron, I appreciate the time. Thanks so much, Andrew. Appreciate it. Of course, the situation in Ukraine and Europe is constantly changing, and I appreciated Aaron's perspective on the impacts on agriculture in that region of the globe and what we can expect to see in this country. It was also good to get an update on U.S. meat exports and domestic consumption and how those numbers have remained steady to strong in many locations. That's all the time we have for this week's show. Remember, you can hear all of our shows at FarmingTheCountryside.com, on many local radio stations, or on your favorite podcast platform. And you can follow Farming the Countryside on Facebook as well. I appreciate you listening. I'm Andrew McRae. I'll catch you next time on Farming the Countryside. This edition of Farming the Countryside has been brought to you by Pivot Bio Proven. Turn to a better nitrogen. Learn more at pivotbio.com.